This podcast is sponsored by Mississippi Land Bank. Visit them online, mslandbank.com. Whether it's farmland, hunting land, or building that dream home, check out Mississippi Land Bank in North Mississippi and online, mslandbank.com. And by Jubilation's Cheesecake in West Point. Stop by the coffee house right on Highway 45 on your way to the game, and you can watch cheesecakes being made. And consider Jubilations for your next fundraiser as well. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. Out-recorded Omaha. Here comes the Bulldog baseball team. And here's a ball in the air. What's up, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Dogpile. This is a different one, and I'm sure y'all are going to enjoy it because we are now doing this thing not once a week, but twice a week. Hey, hey. It's it's getting serious in, in this baseball season. Y'all, we're, we're almost halfway through the SEC season, and, and frankly, now Matt and I aren't as bogged down by both basketball seasons going on in the postseason, the spring football season's about to be over. Their Super Bulldog weekend is coming up pretty soon. We have more time to lock in on baseball, and we're going to do exactly that with twice weekly episodes of Dogpile. We're going to come to you after each weekend series to dive into it and recap it and then come back at you again going into each weekend series. So instead of recapping an entire week, of baseball with each episode of Dogpile. We'll recap a weekend of baseball and preview a weekend of baseball with each episode of Dogpile. And and frankly, Matt, we should have we didn't when we launched this podcast, we didn't realize that this day would come. Mm-hmm. But we should have known with the first couple of episodes how we had trouble keeping these things under like four hours each episode <laughs> that this day was eventually going to happen where we would give ourselves more episodes to talk more baseball. If, if we had enough self-awareness, we probably would have seen this day come. <laughs> yeah. The last few have been kind of long. Uh, it, it, it has been, but that's okay. Um, I got a good half hour with you here today, Brett. And I know that that's, um, that seems short. And I know that you probably have a lot more notes and information than would actually fit comfortably in a half hour, but I think we, I got confidence in you and in us that we can get it done. I, I think, I think we can. Uh, so we're, we're coming to you after Mississippi state does what Mississippi state does. They win another weekend series, this one on the road at Tennessee. Uh, well for no, we recorded after that ULM game. So they, they won that midweek that, uh, midweek and then won the weekend series. They beat Tennessee six to three in 11 innings. One of the weirder baseball games I've ever seen uh, lost two to one on Saturday. I'm sure we'll get into that momentarily and then won the rubber match seven to five on Sunday. So there's there's just so much that went on in this series. I'll, I'll leave it up to you, Matt. Do you want to start with the pitching or the lineup? Yeah, I, it's tough to know where to start, but I just think that pitching is probably the biggest story because of JT Ginn. 
you know, and, yes. and missing the Saturday thing, and we it's this mysterious, you know, soreness or whatever, just didn't want to risk it with him. And then he goes out in game three and throws an inning. They say he looks uncomfortable. He comes right back out of the game. So I think that's probably the biggest story. Yeah, I agree. And and from everything I've heard um, from, from hashtag sources to, to have that moment, um, I don't anticipate this being – a huge issue. Everything I've heard is soreness. And and here's where I stand on soreness. Soreness isn't an actual injury. Soreness is the result of an injury. Mm-hmm. So the best I can tell you is we don't know what's actually happening with JT again. Um, and to, to the best of my knowledge, this isn't something that occurred within a game. Uh, I, I saw a lot of people saying he didn't look like himself in his start against LSU the the previous weekend. I, I have it on on good authority that he pitched that game at, at full health, um, or, or at least full health relative to what he was uh, in that one-inning start on Sunday. Um, he's uh, – so, frankly, we just don't know what's going on with, with JT again, and, and we won't know until we're able to, to ask Coach Lamonis about it after uh, that Wednesday game. Uh, against South Alabama, the the midweek game. I'm sure we'll get to that momentarily, but yeah, JT Ginn is a is a huge story right now, and and what he's going to be able to give State going forward. But Peyton Plumley, I thought was admirable at the very least yeah. in in stepping up and and uh, and moving his start up a day, and surely not the routine he was anticipating having, and and giving State. Very, very good performance. Two hits and three walks allowed, and five and a third hits and, and five and a third innings. Excuse me. And and I, I think we all remember how those two runs came in on just a a strange confluence of events. Something you don't see happen in baseball um, more than once a year. Uh, usually that uh, that weird dead ball, not dead ball situation. Um, but I mean, really, that if that's the only blemish on your start when you're going a day earlier than you anticipated in your first quote unquote scheduled SEC start of the season, since it was technically a TBA uh, last weekend when, when he got that start against yeah. LSU, I, I thought that was, that was about as good as you could ask for. Yeah, I thought so. All right. So five and a third for Peyton in that start, he faced 22 batters through 73 pitches and you look at the majority of his outs came on uh, strikeouts and ground ball outs. You know, so he's on the road, number one, strange mound, strange place. He's hitting the strike zone consistently. He did have the one guy plunked right in the backbone, you know, but he's keeping the yeah. ball in the strike zone consistently, and he's doing it with the ball down a whole bunch. You didn't have – fly ball outs and stuff, you had nine ground outs and three strikeouts. So the majority had four balls that were, you know, uh, ruled fly outs. So, you know, the the whole outing was really good. It really was. Okay, he gets the loss. He has a deal. He throws a ball in a dugout without timeout, and it let the, the two runs score. But even that, you know, if a guy who is emergency start, like he ain't supposed he, – he woke up that morning not supposed to pitch, and he goes out there yeah. and does that. You know, you allow and you, you face twenty two batters and throw seventy three pitches and allow two hits. You know, I, um, 
That's really, really good is what it is. And Tennessee showed you that they are an improved team. You know, they're not there yet, but they they do pitch it very well, and that's why they won that game. I saw a former player on Twitter said something to the like of, you know, everybody's talking about this one play where you allow two runs to score, but that's not why you lost the game. You lost the game because you only scored one run yourself. You know, the, the bats just didn't find the timely hits and stuff on game two. That's fair. Yeah. That's that's completely fair. I agree. Yeah, I thought Peyton was was fantastic, and, and this was just one of those days. Uh, Lingenfelter was, was also in Walsh out of the bullpen was the serious issue. Two and a third hitless. Out of out of the pen and, and only took twenty eight pitches to do it. He was he was the problem. State could not figure him out, and, and this was just one of those days. And I think it, it kind of feeds into uh, something that I wrote in full count um, my weekly baseball post that posted uh, right before we started recording this was the DH situation. They're starting to, to they're trying to figure that spot out, uh, and we'll get to the the lineup. Once, once we're done with the pitching deal. Uh, but while we're on the subject of, of pitching, should who who should we shower praise on to this week? Jared Liebelt or Tristan Barlow? So <laughs> see, it feels like we kind of go back and forth with, with those two. Like those two guys, seems like one of them does something one weekend that is just awesome and incredible. And then the other one does it the next weekend. And we just kind of alternate weekends talking about how great Jared Belt is and then talking about how great Tristan Barlow is. So whose turn is it this weekend? It's tough. Is it, is it Belt's turn? Well, I know, and, and you wrote some some stuff there in the full count piece, mattwyattmedia.com. You want to go read that um, about Tristan. But yeah. didn't Belt pitch twice in the weekend, game one and game three? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and a total – so he, he spanned – What's this? Five innings with three hits allowed. Yeah. No runs allowed. And how many strikeouts? Well, I know he struck out two uh, only yesterday. Three, I think. Well, see, but and that's the thing. Yeah. I know he struck out two um, yesterday, including yes, including you know he pitched three innings in the the series clincher on Sunday at Tennessee. Yep. Pitched three innings. A three inning save. No, the win. Never mind the win. Yeah, no. He, no, yeah, the I save, the save. That's it. He got to save. But yeah, three innings saved, where he gives up only two hits in those three innings, and he only struck out two. You know, but one of those was the the clincher at the end to finish the game off mm-hmm. a big strikeout. Uh, he and Barlow, um, the, their their best qualities are the consistency with which they're hitting the strike zone because their stuff is good enough. One's a righty, one's a lefty. And you think about it, when you're Lamonis or Foxhall, at this point in the year, and, and this Super Bulldog weekend against Alabama is going to be the halfway point, right, So uh, yep. of the SEC part. So, you know, at this point, you have a righty and a lefty that they are super confident we're going to throw strikes. And so they can play matchups in their head knowing, okay, his breaking ball is what he needs to throw against that right-hander. You know, um, Barlow, a lefty, we're going to throw fastball to this guy. We're going to inside. We're going to face that left. They're confident they're going to throw strikes. They're getting swings and misses because their stuff's good enough. I don't know who you point out. I say we talk about Lee Bell. What do you think about his outing? 
Uh, I mean, both of them. I think he's what's I, I'm trying to figure out what's different with him. Yeah. And and I want to talk to him and, and Scott Foxhall about it and, and maybe eventually turn a story out of it. But I, I remember when he first started pitching and pitching well, uh, there was this theory. And frankly, I, I agreed with it that he changed his arm slot. But I, I have it on good authority that that's not true. Uh, and maybe we all just thought that because we saw so little of him last year, we frankly forgot mm. what his what his arm slot was, and that's that's perfectly uh, fair and justifiable. Uh, so I don't really know what is different or better about him. As you mentioned, he's pounding the strike zone, and that that certainly helps. He covered two innings and twenty five pitches in his Friday night relief outing, and then three innings and thirty four. On, on Sunday to get that three inning save. So that, that certainly helps. He's got three saves on the year, by the way, this is a guy that had a double digit ERA last year and he's got three saves, uh, halfway, uh, not even halfway through the sec schedule this year. It's, it's incredible. I, I really want to figure out what's different about him and what is, is just frankly better. And, and I, I will stop at nothing to, to make sure I get that answer. I'm just curious yeah. beyond belief, but what, what impresses me about him is he does this in any role. So early in the SEC year, he was that first guy out of the bullpen. He was that for two straight weekends at Florida and against Auburn. And he did that in that Friday outing. But then when JT Ginn has to get pulled and they have to piece together that Sunday game, he's the last guy. He gets that three-inning save. He doesn't have to be the guy that comes in straight after the starter and does everything he can to get you – as close to that final out as possible. He can chill for the first six, seven innings and then go finish a game for you. He did exactly that in in that Sunday game in that rubber match, by the way, a seven to five rubber match. And it was, what was it? It was six to five when, when he took it over state scored one in the ace. So he took over a one run game rubber match on the road in the sec three innings left and took state home. He's been awesome in every situation you throw him into, that's what arguably impresses me most about him outside of just the, the turnaround and the comeback is that he does this in whatever role Lamonis and Fox Hall choose for him on that given day. They can depend on something awesome from Jared Lee Bell, no matter what the environment you put him in is. Well, um, this was just especially clutch, I thought, from Jared. Because your team had to have you, you know, given everything you mentioned and everything gets moved up because again, can't throw and, and then only goes one inning on Sunday. And it, it's a road series where, I mean, Tennessee's got a great RPI. It's going to look good when it's all said and done. But, you know, later on, you got to host Georgia and some teams like that. You needed to win this series. You didn't have to. One, some people have said you absolutely had to. I, I felt like in terms of RPI and resume, even one win up there at the end of the year is going to be good enough, but to get two is like really, you know, good. And and this is what I'm kind of driving at. Lee Belt had two appearances against Auburn. In one of those, he gave up two runs. He had two appearances against LSU. He gave up at least a run in each of those. He had uh, two appearances against Florida. In one of those, he gave up a run. This one, though, he had two appearances against Tennessee, 
threw the most innings he's thrown against an SEC team by far and did not allow a run. It's his best outing of the year. That's what it is. That, that's that's undeniable. And, and frankly, you could say the same about Keegan James. And, and this is my last bit on, on the pitching okay. this weekend. I just want to take a moment to appreciate what Keegan James is doing because – Given what Peyton Plumley has done in his last two appearances as the quote unquote Sunday starter, uh, since his only uh, his his only gaffe in in that period, right, is is asking for a new baseball at a time in which the ump did not yeah. recognize the request for a new baseball. That's literally the only thing he's done wrong, mm-hmm. and in his time in this role, for for all intents and purposes, Keegan James has been bumped from the Sunday starter role. Now it's, it's early April. Things can change and they will change. But as of this exact moment on Monday, April 8th, Keegan James has been bumped from the Sunday starter role. He responds to that by seeing a huge opportunity, uh, a time where Mississippi state desperately needs him again. They have their awesome starter have to be pulled after one inning due to obvious discomfort, according to the coaching staff. So he goes in there and gives you three innings of one hit, one run ball on 30 pitches. He he saw a huge moment and he stepped up to it and he delivered in it. And that is that just speaks volumes for for Keegan James for him to do that. And this is his senior year, is it not? No, this is his junior year. I apologize. He's a red shirt junior. I, I keep forgetting that red shirt for with him and I don't know why. He he's a red shirt junior and for him to find this opportunity and deliver within, I, I thought was incredibly impressive. And if this stays this way, if Plumlee is your Sunday starter going forward and Keegan James is the guy you go to beyond that when, whenever you desperately need him, kind of like a Jared Liebelt situation, yeah. if, we're, if we're being honest, this just makes this bullpen even more ridiculous that, that you basically have four starters and, and you can turn to one of them out of the bullpen if you need it. And if we're going to spend this conversation even further forward, Keegan James is the kind of piece that you have to have in regionals in super regionals and in Omaha Mm -hmm. to those teams that perform well in, in those tournament style settings. They're the ones that for all intents and purposes have four weekend starters. And if you can get that out of Ethan small, for sure, you're getting that. If you can continue to get that out of Peyton Plumley, if you can continue to get that, out of Keegan James and his outings. And let's let's assume that JT Ginn is eventually going to return to health and be the JT Ginn that we've seen him be for the first two months of, of the season. That's basically what State has. And it, it bodes well for uh, late May and all of June when when that time of the year comes around. Yeah. Hey, and, and one quick note on him too, and then we'll pause for sponsors and get into the hitting portion of this. Um, Keegan James – since getting bumped, his outings, he's throwing a ball harder. Now, that's what it looks like to me, and according to the radar gun also. So yeah. they brought him in in relief in that third game of the LSU series last weekend. And right off the bat, he had a couple of 94 fastballs. You know, and when he was going out there and starting game threes, he was settling in on a fastball at about 90, 91, you mm-hmm. know. But he still was only out there for, you know, three innings at a time anyway. And so since this has changed, he went in. Now, there might have been some anger there, you know, getting back on the mound <laughs> and getting bumped. 
And he had a couple of those against LSU that came back to bite him because he overthrew a couple of times. He bounced a couple of up, up there that went to the backstop, but he threw it really hard. And then you saw him, uh, I felt like against Tennessee, um, excellent velocity. So it's almost like maybe a change in the role in the situation has allowed him to free up. Or, or he's going out the last couple of times, he's not taking the approach of, hey, I'm a starter, I'm going to be out here for six, seven innings and throw 98 pitches, so I'm going to cruise this fastball in these early innings at 90-91, I'm going to shuttle it back and just, you know, he's thinking spin rate and all that. No, he's been out there throwing a ball hard, and he looks pretty good because he look makes him just seem aggressive, and I think maybe he's finding a little something right there, go out and just attack everybody, and if they hit it, they hit it sort of thing, but he has looked good. State would would certainly appreciate that out of him. So now that we've, I think we've we've hit our Peyton Plumley appreciation. We've hit our Keegan James appreciation. Jerry Lee Belt, Tristan Barlow, we've done all that. There's a lot of news to hit on the uh, on the hitting side of things. But shall we shall we hear from our sponsors before we do that? Let's do it now. We do more than make a living off the land in North Mississippi. We live for the land too. We live for an early morning duck hunt, time spent in a deer stand, a day of fishing and the outdoor life. For more than 100 years, Mississippi Land Bank has been a great hunting partner for recreational land lovers. By helping to finance the land they set their sights on, we know what a hunter loves and the lay of the land in North Mississippi. And that's where I stand. You can find Jubilation's Cheesecakes in North Mississippi Kroger's and in other stores, including locations throughout the Golden Triangle. Look for Jubilation's products and support Great Bulldogs. You'll notice the quality and the flavor the second you take your first bite. And they make wonderful mail-order gifts as well. Check them out at jubilations.com or stop by and see them in West Point right on Highway 45. So a lot to get into on the hitting side of it, Brett. Um, namely, like what you had shuffling going on. Get into that just real quick, though. Obviously, Jake Mangum, everybody knows this now, has broken state's career hit record. He passed Jeffrey Ray this past weekend. Brett, I did want to point this out. You weigh in for me. There was a little bit of misinformation out there. I was reading some stuff at um, Baseball America, and when they were – Noting weekend standouts, they put Jake Mangum in there, and in their little nugget, they said he's got 339, and they said it put him 10 hits behind former LSU great Eddie Furness. I think that's incorrect because what I have, and if you look at the um, Twitter account Mangum's Chase, it has Mangum at 339, but Eddie Furness, the record at 352. That would mean Jake needs 13 more to tie. Furnace's record, he would need 14 to break it, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that's right. The the Mississippi State game notes have Eddie Furnace at, at 352, and I'm pulling up the uh, the SEC record book as we speak just to just to confirm the uh, just to confirm the record in in two different places. But yeah, 352 is is the number that I've always gone off of for uh, for Eddie Furnace. Now he does have Jake does have 339. That that part is correct. Uh, they do. He does have 339. Um, so that means that he's, he's, that's what 13 behind. Yeah. Right? So he'll need 13 to tie 14 yep. to pass him. That's what we're looking at. Right. Yep. And, and, and there's even more history in front of him, just like 
immediately. So before we dive into okay. All right. the Jake Mankum number of things, I do want to correct something I said on the on the previous podcast where we're about transparency here. Uh, at one point, I said that he'd only missed one game in the three years that I've been here. Someone on Twitter, uh, I dang it, I just had the tweet pulled up, and I, now it's now it's gone. I wish I could correct, uh, could commend the person, but it's actually two. He was out for one game in Pearl um, at the at the Embrace place against Southern Miss. That I just yeah, who everything about that year just block it from my memory. <laughs> weird weird times, but anyway. I missed on that one, and then and that will. I'd, I'd like to issue that correction here now, to get to the the actual Mangum numbers thing because he tends to have like 13 hits in every single midweek game. <laughs> we should let you know that he has 339, and the tie for second in SEC history is at 341 with uh, Florida's Preston Tucker and Auburn's Jay Wagoner. Okay. So it's entirely possible that the next time we do this podcast going into Super Bulldog weekend, the only SEC hitter ahead of Jake Mangum is the man that's held this record for 20 years, Eddie Furness. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. And, you know, we got to wait and see what happens. But obviously playing South Alabama at uh, Duty Noble in the midweek, three games against Alabama this coming weekend for Super Bulldog weekend. And, you know, look, far be it for me to – sit on here and use up any time trying to dream up some scenario that may not even happen. But I'm just saying, pointing it out, that, you know, Jake's dad, John Mangum, was a great defensive back at the University of Alabama. Yep. And they kind of grew up in Alabama family. Um, I don't know if they've ever touched on. I may have dreamed this up, but seems where seems like I read somewhere along the way that, you know, growing up, Jake's an Alabama fan, you know. Yeah, you read that for me. Okay, all right, that makes sense because I used to read everything you wrote, um, and still do for the for the record. I'm gonna <laughs> pat myself on the back there. Sorry. So Jake grew up an Alabama fan, and. Yeah. Uh, um, this is a deal where, who knows, depending on how the ball falls against South Alabama in the midweek and then game one, game two, um, it's not a stretch to think that who know, there's a possibility that comes Sunday, Jake may be sitting there with a chance to go, you know, two for four or three for four and tie or break that record against Alabama. Um and just how great would that be for him to do it in front of a Super Bulldog weekend crowd? Because mm-hmm. those things are uh, – this fan base always shows up for baseball, but that, that Super Bulldog weekend crowd is, is of course, a step above and beyond that. So for, for Jake to have that moment in front of 15,000 instead of 12,000, right. I mean, just what would what would that do for, for that day at Duty Noble? And, and you mentioned – uh, that it's it's totally within reason. I, I joked earlier about Jake getting 13 hits in every midweek game, but honestly, the the actual numbers might be funnier. He's got 19 hits in his last five midweek games. That's 3.8 hits per game. <laughs> this is where I would normally say that a lot of those hits came against Grambling and Mississippi Valley State and similar, frankly, just bad college baseball teams. Mm. But South Alabama, the midweek opponent this week, is not having a good year. They're 14 and 17. They're four and eight in Sunbelt play. They got swept by Alabama. Their last two Sunbelt series, they got swept by UT Arlington and lost two of three to Coastal Carolina at home. So Jake has been 
taking advantage of, of midweek competition and racking up three, four, five hits in those games. It's got him well ahead of the pace that we projected him for um, in the preseason. And this South Alabama team, it just might present the opportunity for him to to do the same. So there's just some some numbers to bolster your your point that he's only uh, a dozen hits behind Eddie Furness right now. And it's not out of the question to say he could be knocking on Eddie Furness's doorstep by the end of Super Bulldog weekend. No, that's right. It, it could happen. It would take an incredible four-game run to do it by that Sunday game against Alabama, but you know, stranger things have happened. And what you could also have is another scenario that I could easily dream up, Brett, is you could have a deal where he comes out of the weekend like one or two away. And if that's the case, then you're looking at a midweek home game against Texas Southern on Tuesday, April 16th. And if he's one or two hits away from setting the record, you'll put an extra several thousand people in there for a midweek game just to be there when he breaks that record, if that happens to be the case. And $2 tickets for midweeks, right? Yep, that's right. So, (laughs) you know, however it works out, yeah, you know, you're happy for him however it works out because you would really love for him to – for it to happen in front of the home crowd and take a little bit of a bow, but it may not. You know, it may happen not this weekend but next at Arkansas. It could happen in – all the way down there in a couple of weeks when they play um, Ole Miss and in Pearl, you just which that might be apropos. It'd be right there, basically at his hometown. But anyway, okay, enough of dreaming up story scenarios. It'll happen when it happens. So on to your notes from um, uh, your full count article, MattWyattMedia.com. On to your notes right there. Concerns, questions, shuffled things around. What was your takeaway on all that? Yeah, I just. I, I I wouldn't say concern is is the right word. It's just it's just intrigue because this isn't this isn't how I anticipated this season going, and, and I didn't anticipate the same lineup every single day for the entire season. There's going to be ups and downs in in a baseball season. That's how this sport works. But I I guess I didn't anticipate so many moving pieces at the same time. I didn't anticipate to have these changes at second base and then by ripple effect third base going on at the same time as states trying to figure out what to do with DH uh, at this given moment since the DH position in their pinch hitters went one for 10 against Tennessee if my if my math was was correct. Uh, I just didn't anticipate this much shuffling to go on at the same time and it's clearly not – a bad thing because they won the series. And frankly, this isn't the worst time of year to do it because if you can win a series at Tennessee with this, you can almost certainly win a series at home against Alabama doing this. Although Alabama did put up a pretty good series with South Carolina last weekend. So this is not last year's Alabama. They're, they're better than that, but we'll get to that uh, in the, in the next episode when we preview super bulldog weekend, I just thought it was, it's, it's an interesting time of, I guess, upheaval, would be the word in, yeah. in the lineup considering they had three different combinations in the two and three hole this, this weekend that wasn't the same order and, and personnel grouping uh, for all three days of, of the weekend. They used pinch hitters at DH a bunch, which isn't uncommon, but the fact that none of them delivered is uncommon. And then the Gunner Halter move out of second base was, 
was an intriguing one to me. And then, of course, there's that move with Tanner Allen going 0 for 4, moving up in the lineup, and then delivering a big day. And I, I loved your tweet about Tanner Allen when he hit that dinger uh, in that in that Sunday game. So I think most of my most of my thoughts and and uh, projections even are are kind of outlined in in full count. You can go to the the Hudson Report page on mattwhitemedia.com to kind of run through all of those options. What what do you think of where this lineup stands right now? I think that it is incredibly intriguing at this point in the year, Brett. Um, I don't, off the top of my head, have a recent year in state baseball history that I would compare it to, where at this point in the year, you may not know who all your starters are on the infield and in what spots and in what combination. You may not know. I think a little, you know, a little jockeying around with spots in the lineup depending on who's hot and who's not is pretty normal. I I just think that's pretty normal. And it happens, you know. Heck, it's – again, it's baseball. And you're you're in the SEC, the number one league in the country. They're the number one RPI league in the country. Incredible Friday starters and a bunch of good Saturdays and future stars on Sundays who are just figuring it out. It's tough. So there's going to be some normal jockeying in the lineup for the most part. And just like, I mean, Tanner Allen is a, a great hitter. He's been cold as a cucumber. And you knew good and well at some point he's going to have big hits. What do you do? He go. He hits three, three balls yesterday really hard. One of them uh, leaves the ballpark and is still traveling. I mean – you knew it was going to happen. So people who get up in arms, it's like Rowdy. Look what he's done the last 10 games. He's batting over 400 yep. with two home runs. All that's normal. What I think is, you know, Foscue going from third to second, Gilbert in there at third, the potential that I do think that it's not just speculating. it. There's a real potential to, yeah, Hatcher may be a first baseman for you. And Allen may go to second base. I mean, if that were to happen, it would just be almost unprecedented at this point in the year for recent good Mississippi State teams that we've seen. Um, I agree, and that's why in in my full count thing, I, I put that scenario just on the edge of of realistic. Like if you draw a line between realistic and unrealistic, mm-hmm. that that scenario is just on the right side of realistic where that could happen. And and I do want to address this because this is where Twitter seems to be going with this just on the opposite side of that line. In my opinion is Rowdy playing second base. Rowdy is Rowdy, a incredibly athletic young man who could play second base in a pinch. Yes. Is he a former infielder? Did he do that in high school? Yes. When's the last time he took a competitive ground ball in the infield? Yeah. When's the last time he did that? He has not done that as a bulldog, guys. And and he's been taking reps exclusively in the outfield. Reps that matter, they've all been in the outfield. Now, it's one thing to take Foscue and move him from third to second. That's something that is attainable and feasible and clearly Makes something sense. the coaching staff likes because they've already done it multiple times. But to take Rowdy from left and put him – it's second, yes, that does open a position in the field for Cumbest or Hatcher. And and as I mentioned myself, it'd be fun to see Cumbest and Hatcher in the same lineup. That'd be that'd be a lot of fun. But I, I think the fielding and positional 
aspect of that. It's not that Rowdy couldn't do it. It's that you wouldn't want to put him in that position, right? Because he hasn't fielded a competitive ground ball that mattered in, in such a long period of time. So I, in my opinion, that is just on the opposite side of this line between realistic and, and unrealistic. And maybe the coaching staff changes how it looks at things and it moves back on the other side of that line between realistic and unrealistic. But my opinion, as of right now, Rowdy playing second base is just on the wrong side of that unrealistic line, whereas the Tanner Allen playing second base thing Mm -hmm. is just on the correct side of that realistic, unrealistic line. I just wanted to get that out there because Twitter is is immediately seeming to jump to to Rowdy playing second base, and I just wanted to to get my thought out there. Yeah, I don't see that as as happening either. You know, the, the Marshall Gilbert thing is interesting. If you look, it would be really easy for if we if we went back four or five months for them to go, hey, Halter, because of your arm, instead of second base, you're going to be a third baseman. You know, um, at, at third yeah. base, you got to react. There's a little less about range for a kid who's 6'3", 6'4", but has incredible arm strength. Third base could definitely be an option for him. Well – you know, so so what if Foscue sticks at second base? What if over the next three, four games we see some double play opportunities and he handles it just seamlessly and it seems like a natural fit for Foscue? You know, is Gilbert going to be an everyday third baseman? Or would there be a scenario where at times Halter goes and plays third base? I, I don't know how realistic any of that is. I just know that if you compare those two guys, right, because – they moved Foscu in the field, but in the lineup, it was Marshall Gilbert basically replacing Gunnar Halter, right? That's basically what we saw. Yes. Yes. So, Gilbert is a 300 hitter. Halter is a 256 hitter, but he's got twice as many at bats this year. Yes. Okay, so, so, Gilbert, you know, 50 or so points better, but 40 or so fewer at bats. And then, when, so when you look at it, they're kind of, in a lot of ways, the same as a right-handed hitter. Now, Gilbert had a clutch hit this weekend at one point, a big at-bat back in the first game. They both, even though twice as many at-bats for Halter, they both have one home run. They both have three doubles on the year. You know, we know their average. The thing about it is, in twice as many at-bats, Halter has scored 25 runs this year. Gilbert's crossed the plate three times, a grand total of three times. So it tells you a lot about the mm-hmm. situations he's been in there. But Gilbert has yeah. a higher slugging. And in terms of strikeouts, too, again, look at it this way. All right, Halter, I know he's been he's in a rough stretch, and they sit him to let him watch a few games. But in 86 at-bats, he struck out 21 times. In half the at-bats – 40 for Gilbert, he struck out 13 times. He's a he's a more of a strikeout per at bat guy than Halter is, but he's he's Good got the, he's got the slugging to go with the fewer at bats. So I don't know that there's this ton of difference between the two in that regard. I just know that that was their solution this weekend. And look, they went and took two out of three from a top ten RPI team without JT Ginn, essentially, and. If it works, why change it? They may stick with it, and if it keeps working, they'll just stick with it. 
Yeah, that's that's a good point. I honestly hadn't considered the possibility of of Gunnar Halter playing third. I'm going to have to let that rattle around in my head a few days. I might even ask the the team about it if uh, if think. the right opportunity comes after that that midweek game. This is this is the most intrigue I've had in a post game press conference after a midweek game in in a long time. I can't I can't remember actually caring about a post game <laughs> midweek press conference like this. There's just there's just so much to go over. Yeah. Well, um, I'm interested to see too. And if you're listening and and you you know are new, uh, make sure you follow Brett on Twitter, Brett underscore Hudson. All the content will be there, and also uh, the things that he's writing at mattwyattmedia.com. Just go to the blog page and you'll see it. Of course, and uh, all the links and stuff going out. But it should be an interesting midweek. Hats off, Jake Mangum. Knew it was going to happen, just didn't know when. And it happens on the road at Tennessee. Uh, breaking the the Mississippi State hits record. Next up is the SEC record. That'll be coming, uh, you know, barring something unforeseen. And uh, then a big Super Bowl dog weekend coming up. It's about to be a fun month of baseball, considering who and what, when and where. You're going to have Georgia coming to town in a few weeks, who is the number two team in the country now, according to D1 Baseball. They just took two out of three from Vandy. You're going to have four games coming up against Ole Miss, one in Pearl in the Governor's Cup, three in Oxford, and Brett will be there for those. Of course, Alabama this weekend, Super Bulldogs. So, Brett, it's about to be a fun little sprint to the end of the regular season. I know. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to it. The The competition is about to, to ramp up once Super Bulldog weekend gets yeah. out. It's, it's – uh, it's a good time. I'm I'm looking forward to it. It's a good time to be doing this two times a week. This is yes. this is the perfect time of year. Hey, and one quick note again. It's not too early to mention RPI in baseball, is it? Uh, I think we're getting there. I think you're I, I think, I think there. we're Yeah, we're almost there. If you had done this 2 weeks ago, I'd have been like, "Uh, yeah. but no, I think we're we're about there." Well, this we're is about the, there. This is the only thing I was going to point out right now in regards to RPI is Tennessee, the team he just beat on the road, is a top 15 RPI right now. Uh, Georgia, a team you're going to host, is number six in the RPI. Um, and, uh, like, later on, you're going to go – you're going to have neutral side against Ole Miss, and then three at their place. They are right now 20 – they are right now 24 in the RPI. So. Yep. Depending on how theirs goes, and they're winning, and they're really hot right now, but let's just say they're a 25 or a 26 or a 27 RPI. Well, frankly, that's who you want to play on the road. You don't want to play them at home. You want to play them on the road. So mm-hmm. with, with, and, and so the, the schedule, if you keep winning these games, is really going to shake out to help you as tough as the schedule is. Now, again, you go, well, Florida, yeah, I know. Florida's RPI right now down to 32, but – they're still going to have some help for you in the RPI category because it was on the road. Then that all points to this weekend. As it stands right now, of course, again, it's still kind of early RPI, but just understand as it stands right now, Alabama is the worst RPI team in the SEC, and that's after they swept South Carolina. Um, right? Yeah, they swept South Carolina. They are at a 60 right now in the RPI. That is the lowest in the SEC currently, ahead of Kentucky, who's at 51. So just for what we know right now, this is a home series that is very important for Mississippi State. 
simply because you could, not that you definitely will, but you could look up at the end of the year potentially and go, all right, that Alabama series at home, it wasn't an opportunity series, but it was definitely a consequence series. And so just keep that in mind. That's that's my point, and I do know it's early, and we'll know more in two, three weeks. But there, I just wanted to get that out there. Yeah, yeah, and you mentioned that that Bama series against South Carolina. They won a doubleheader, 9-0-4-1. They did actually end up losing that game three in 12 innings. Okay, So that's the only reason Alabama didn't sweep that series is because that, that rubber match went 12. That's, right. that's the only reason, and that's the team that's coming to town this weekend. All right. Yeah, and uh, they had one guy who really pitched it well against them. But anyway, um, you know, that's what you're up against and have big, huge crowds. Good stuff as always, Brett. Glad the dogs are back at home and we can see each other at the ballpark again soon. Yep. For Brett Hudson, I'm Matt Wyatt. Thanks for listening to Dogpile. Hat tip, <clears throat> excuse me, hat tip Mississippi Land Bank and Jubilations Cheesecake in West Point. Y'all are headed to the games this week or this weekend. Go through West Point, stop in and see them there at Jubilation. And we'll see you next time on Dogpile.